Welcome back to Scouting the Cities. I'm Scout Mason. It's a big episode this week. We have Secretary of State Steve Simon coming to the studio. What an awesome time it was to talk to him. Clearly very passionate about what he does. As I've said about many of our other guests, Steve Simon cares, and it was awesome to talk to him. He doesn't really need an introduction. He's never lost an election. He's the Secretary of State of Minnesota, and here he is, Steve Simon, on this week's Scouting the Cities. All righty, Secretary Simon, welcome in. Um, I hope you're having a great day. Thank I you am. for coming in. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So you're in a, a big position here in Minnesota, Secretary of State, big position nationally, especially with everything that's gone on in the last few years. Um, I want to start with how you got here, though. Growing up yeah. in Hopkins in, in Minnetonka area, right? Um, you know, going to high school there, and then how how do you work your way to you you went to school in Massachusetts right and then work your way into you know becoming a lawyer and then here in this position right you basically summarized it yeah. no but I mean I, I think for me in terms of my own I, I would go back even further if I had to date the onset of my interest into all of this stuff I would say it was even elementary school and back then my parents had two hard copy news sources that were lying around the house all the time. One was the Star Tribune newspaper. We took the physical copy of that paper every day, so it was on the breakfast table when I came in bleary-eyed getting ready to go to school. And then they had Time Magazine, the weekly news magazine. And I remember it was just lying around. They never forced it on me. They never said, eat your vegetables and read your Time Magazine or anything like that. But it was just lying around. And I'd look at headlines. You know, I'm 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I'm looking at these headlines. It could be a famine or a war or a sports score or an election or whatever. And I just, it got me curious. And over time, I developed a rooting interest in outcomes, meaning, all right, here's what the headlines are today. What do I want them to be tomorrow? And that, to me at least, naturally led to um, an interest in the political sphere because that deals with outcomes um, and preferred outcomes on, on, on a range of issues. And so that's what really lit the fuse or the, the spark for me. And so I went to Hopkins High School in, in um, the Hopkins, Minnetonka area. You're right. Then I went off to school uh, in Massachusetts to Tufts University, majored in political science. I spent a semester in Washington, D.C., which further expanded my horizons, but also deepened my interest in the subject generally. Um, and then I, I didn't go to law school right away. I was supposed to. But um, I then hitched a ride on a presidential campaign and worked at the national headquarters of a presidential campaign and deferred law school for a year. And then after a year doing that and some other things when the campaign was over, then I, I did go to law school at the University of Minnesota. And, um, and then right out of the University of Minnesota, I went to work at the Minnesota Attorney General's office in St. Paul, which was a fantastic experience. It's a great office, mission-driven, great experience, especially for young attorneys. Um, and then I went to work for a law firm in Minneapolis. And while I was there, I ran for the legislature in the place where I grew up and still live, which is the Hopkins and St. Louis Park area. And I served in the legislature for 10 years, from 2004 to 2014, and then ran for this office, Secretary of State, in 2014, and have been reelected twice since then. Incidentally, when I was in the legislature, I was always, always, always and consistently involved in democracy issues. I was always on the elections-related committee, and in my final term, I chaired that committee. And so I had a front row seat to democracy 
and to so many of the things that we're talking about now. So it's been a passion for a long, long time. I see democracy issues as connected with every other issue because so many of these roads lead to the ballot box. If you want certain outcomes, it doesn't matter whether you're liberal, conservative, in the middle, something else, you know, you're going to want to get people elected to office who share your views and values. But to do that, you have to make sure elections are fair, accurate, honest, and secure. So making that step from being, obviously you, you knew this was a passion of yours yeah. um, to serve people and, you know, what you just spoke about, democracy. But making that step from being a lawyer, having kind of security in a way to putting yourself out there, you're a face of a campaign. Right. Was that nerve wracking? Like, how, how did you make that step? How did you build the confidence to do it? You know, I bet it's never not nerve wracking. Um, it was certainly in my case. There's that surreal moment when you first run for any office. It could be president or school board or whatever it is. And you see your name for the first time on a piece of campaign literature or on a campaign sign. It's, it's, an, it's a strange out of body experience. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's not just that. It's, it's, as you say, sort of sticking your neck out there because you know there are people, some portion of people instantly, based on your political affiliation or your positions, instantly will like you and some people will instantly dislike you. And then there's the vast middle who are not sure. And so you've got to sort of convince the people who are not sure. But generally speaking, yeah, I mean, I think for anyone to run for office, uh, me or anyone else, it takes a certain, um, a certain courage, I think, uh, because you really are putting yourself out there in the public realm, and people who don't know you are going to jump to conclusions about you based on a bunch of other things that are beyond your control. Yeah, and you spoke about you speak about how people are you know, are instantly not going to like you, right? And I think a, a big topic among you know celebrities and athletes is how do you tune that out? I don't know if it's talked about as much with politicians. I mean, yeah. who are now on Twitter as much as anyone right. else, right? Like That's who right. can see it. So how do you avoid seeing that stuff and, and letting it get to you? Well, I, I think you just have to, um, there's a certain dividing line that happens. I think with, I can't speak for everyone, but my sense is that many feel this way. I know I do, which is you just have to say to the people who um, are, are, are negative, look, they don't, they don't know me. They know a certain persona. They know a certain bundle of positions that they perceive I have or that I do have. And so you can't take it personally or you work really hard not to take it personally. They're responding to something else. Uh, and, and so that's, that's how I go through it. And by the way, this is not to complain. I mean, this is America. It's a free country. We have a First Amendment and it's every citizen's right to disagree strongly um, and in strong terms using salty language or to be, uh, you know, aggressively opposed to a person or an agenda or whatever, that's, that's life. We, you know, you sign up for this gig. And so wh when you're in elected office, you can't really complain about that. I don't. I mean, uh, unless it's really extreme, like something like, a, you know, a death threat or whatever, that, that's different. But when it comes to just people being mad at you, um, it's, I, I find comfort in the fact that, look, that's, that's part of the push and pull of democracy. It's, it's not always pretty. And, uh, but that's okay. It's, it's still worth doing very much worth doing. Yeah. One, yeah. one of the things I've found with this podcast, I've, I've loved talking to people who are very passionate about what they're doing. Business yeah. owners, creatives, like I said, clearly you're passionate about this. What are some moments where you maybe have lost that passion or not lost the passion, but maybe yeah. knocked down a peg. And then what do you 
think about to remember, okay, this is why I love it. Yeah. I've never lost the passion, no matter what has happened, ever, not even for a second. But in terms of moments that take you back, I'll, I'll give you one that um, was particularly disheartening. So at or around the time of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, that general area, um, I remember um, getting recommendations from people in authority, let's just put it that way, that uh, my wife and I should consider moving out of our house for a few days, going to a hotel or going somewhere for a few days because it was really a difficult time. There was some um, reliable, credible intelligence that there were protesters who were talking at least about showing up at my house and other people's houses with weapons, showing up armed. It never happened. They didn't actually show up, but we couldn't have known that at the time. And so that was a moment that was a bit scary for my wife and I. We have two little kids. We ended up not moving or leaving. We made the decision, no, we're not going to do that. I mean, if something happens, we'll consider it, but we won't preemptively do that. But that was a moment, a a sort of chaotic moment in the life of the country, but also in the life of our family. Like, okay, do do we do this? Do we, do we leave? Do we, do we say? But you know, in retrospect, especially, I can say, you know, that doesn't dim the flame at all. It doesn't diminish the passion at all. It doesn't, it doesn't reduce uh, the importance of the work, the democracy work. And so if anything, in some weird way, it, it sort of strengthens your resolve not to give in, not to surrender, not to shrink or back away in the face of even these kinds of threats. So, I mean, it all sort of comes back to the work, which is the work is wonderful and worth doing. I always say I'm in the democracy business, and it's really, though challenging, also a wonderful time to be in the democracy business, and that never goes away. And those challenges, um, as I say, just sort of strengthen the resolve, if anything else. Yeah, I'm sure the challenges yeah. fuel, fuel you a little bit. You, yeah. want, you want to solve problems. Right. Like, um, so... You, you mentioned your family a little bit. I, I want to talk about how you kind of separate this very busy life that you have uh, as Secretary of State, as, you know, before in the, in the House. Now, like, separating your family from your work, getting yeah. back to your roots, and just being able to sit down and have dinner. How, how right. do you go about, you know, making sure you're still there for your family? Well, I, it's no different for me than anyone else in any other pursuit that requires a lot of time. It could be a professional athlete. It could be uh, a teacher. It could be anyone else. There's always that work-life balance. So I'm not, I'm certainly not unique in that regard. But I would say that, um, you know, you have to be intentional about it. It's not always easy. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There are things that pull me away from my family uh, quite a bit, um, depending on the time of year, depending on where we are, what's going on. And so it's about just coming back to first principles, making time to do things with family. I just, we just did a family vacation, which was wonderful and making that time, carving out that time when you can to do it. That's the best advice I could do. I could give, but boy, if that, if anyone had the silver bullet advice, I'd I'd love to hear it because anyone who has a busy professional life in any way faces the same issue. Not just me, not just people in elective office, business owners, um, everyone. And so all I can offer up is, is my own intention to, to be intentional, I guess, about carving out time. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you always talk about is how you're for Minnesotans. You're not, you know, of course, you're part of the DFL, right? Yep. But you're for all Minnesotans. Yeah. You talked about how, of course, people are going to, you know, dislike you just because of that party affiliation. 
but throughout your career, you've tried to kind of make it, yeah. I'm for Minnesotans. Right. How have you gone about doing that, and how do you think you've sort of bridged that gap yeah. um, to, to make people understand that you are for everyone? Well, I'll tell you, this job really is unique among other political jobs or elected jobs in Minnesota. The word unique gets thrown around a lot more than it should. Unique truly means one of a kind. Uh, and this office is one of a kind. There is a responsibility in this office, I would say more than just about any other office, given the nature of the work, helping to coordinate and helping others to run elections. There is a responsibility uh, that the holder of this office, whether it's me, my predecessor, my successor, someone who's a Democrat or Republican, something else, there is a responsibility to be absolutely fair. You have to. It's okay to have political ideas and principles and positions. Everyone does. I run with a party label, as you said, but you have to leave that stuff at the door. Not your values, of course. You don't leave your values at the door, but your political affiliations or any other political loyalties you might have, you have to leave those at the door and you have to do this job um, fairly. Uh, because you have to make some judgment calls often. And sometimes uh, people who are political allies of yours won't like those. I mean, I, I always talk about the fact uh, I have been sued twice by my own political party, and we went all the way to the Minnesota Supreme Court. We, I, won both times, and I wouldn't do anything different. I thought they were wrong. They thought I was wrong. That's what judges are for, by the way. There's nothing shameful or bad about a lawsuit. All it means is I have a particular position on the law. Someone else says it's wrong. I think their position is wrong. We can't resolve it. That's why we have judges. They resolve exactly those kinds of disputes. But the point uh, of all this is that, you know, I hope that demonstrates uh, in both of those cases and others with, uh, with other sort of would-be allies that I have to and we have to in our office call things like we see them. We have to make judgments that are best for every voter. It doesn't matter how they vote. It doesn't matter what their political affiliation is. It doesn't matter what their ideology is. The point is, my job and our job is to follow the law and to make sure, as much as we can, that um, Minnesota voters, regardless of their affi political affiliation, have the opportunity to vote. If they vote for a particular political party, that is none of my business. It's about opening up the process for everyone, making sure access is free, making sure elections are fair and accurate and honest and secure. That's the bottom line. And all of the other political stuff, it's important on the official side of this office to really drown that out. Mm -hmm. And you've pushed some new laws over the finish line um, regarding you know, election, getting people to vote. Um, you know, 16, 17-year-olds uh, pre-registering, um, uh, uh, people who are coming out of prison who can vote now. That's right. Um, why, why is that important yeah. for, for you, I guess, personally, and then for all Min Minnesotans, or just across the United States, Americans? Yeah, well, this is an exciting time, as I said, to be in the democracy business. One of the reasons it's so exciting is we just finished in Minnesota a legislative session, which was epic. It was one for the ages. It's not an exaggeration to say that at least in this lane, in the democracy lane, but really in many other lanes, but in the democracy lane, this was the most consequential, impactful legislative session in 50 years. Really, this comes along a couple times a century. No joke. So you would have to go back to literally 1973, 50 years ago, to find a more impactful session. That was the year, 1973, when Minnesota adopted what I still call the jewel in the crown of our election laws, which is same-day or election day voter registration, meaning you don't have to register before the election. There's no cutoff like there is still to this day in the majority of states. 
Rather, you can stroll in on the day of the election to your polling place, having never registered before or maybe in need of refreshing your registration. Maybe you moved, maybe you had a name change, whatever the reason, and you can do that on game day. Well, that was 1973. Fifty years later, uh, a number of once-in-a-generation reforms were just passed. And I'm really excited about the work now of implementing those things. Yes, I and others worked on these for years. Now that we got them across the finish line, as you say, now we got to implement them. And we've got to do so with care and we got to do so with fairness. So I'll tick off a few examples. And you named a couple crucial ones. One is pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. This is a big deal. And by the way, all the things I'm going to tick off here, each and every one of them are nonpartisan in origin and nonpartisan in effect, meaning they came from a totally nonpartisan place and they will have a total nonpartisan effect. They will not impact positively one political party over another. So one is 16 and 17 year olds pre-registration. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're actually registered. It means if you're 16 or 17 year old now in Minnesota and you're otherwise eligible, you're a citizen, you're a resident, all of that stuff, you can sign up, basically fill out a form online or on paper and get in line to be registered. It enables the checking and the screening and the filtering to be done early so that, boom, on your 18th birthday, if everything checks out, if you are who you say you are, for example, um, then you're going to be registered to vote. You don't have to think about it. And studies have shown in other states that it has a meaningful impact. It's not just happy talk. It's not just theory. It has a real impact on the likelihood that a person will vote that first time they're eligible, 18, 19, 20, et cetera. We also passed automatic voter registration. Um, which is a little bit of a misnomer in this sense. It's not automatic in the sense that some, you know, software is registering people or a computer or whatever. Real human beings are still filtering and screening people. The automatic part comes in with the intention of the voter. So right now, if you go in and get a driver's license or renew a driver's license or get a state ID, the law before this was that there was a box you could check saying, register me to vote. I want to be registered to vote in addition to getting or renewing my driver's license. This will just presume the opposite. Instead of an opt-in where the citizen has to check a box, it will just, you don't have to check a box anymore. It will just assume you do want to be registered to vote unless you say no. And you can say no always, the next day, the next week, the next month. And that's a way of getting hundreds of thousands of Minnesotans into the system, checked earlier, get our voting rolls, which are already clean, even cleaner, even earlier. So it's a security measure as well mm-hmm. as getting a lot of eligible but unregistered people on the list. And then another one I would highlight that you did too is restoring the right to vote in Minnesota for people who have left prison behind. They've done their time. They've been finished with their time sometimes years and even decades ago. 55,000 Minnesotans uh, will now, do now, have their right to vote back. And the rationale behind that is, look, if a judge or a jury or someone who knows a particular case, they know the facts, they've heard the testimony, they reviewed the evidence, they, not you, not me, not anyone else uh, watching this, but they determine that a person by a certain date, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, whenever, is worthy enough to leave prison and be among the rest of us, then that person ought to at least have a say in their future, who governs them and how. And so that Um, is catching on nationally. North Dakota did this years ago. Iowa is moving in that direction. Florida, states like uh, Indiana, Nebraska, others. So it's bipartisan across the country. And Minnesota has now joined that list. And so getting the word out through broadcasts like this is going to be important. Uh, 55,000 people just got their right to vote back. They might not even know it. 
Uh, the ink is barely dry on that legislation, and we want to make sure we get the word out. Yes, if you are out of prison but once served in prison, you now have the vote back if you're a citizen, if you're a resident of Minnesota, if you're 18 and older. Obviously, those prerequisites, those qualifications still apply. So those are examples of things. There are several others that were done this legislative session um, that I and many others have worked on for many years that are now the law and that will continue to make Minnesota, I think, a national leader. I never miss an opportunity to brag that three out of the last four elections, Minnesota has been number one in America in voter turnout. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's just a lucky streak. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think a major reason why that's the case is we have for a long time had laws on the books in Minnesota that enable people more easily to vote while also balancing the important concern of security. We've gotten that balance right, and it doesn't matter whether people vote blue or red or purple or something in between. Um, it affects everyone, and, and it, it's really a rising tide that lifts all boats in Minnesota. And so we've just strengthened that. We've gotten the balance uh, right, and I think we're well prepared for continued national leadership. Yeah, and what's funny is I, I actually became a Minnesotan uh, like a few weeks ago. I got, I got got the license, but I uh, saw that automatic registration in action. Yep. Um, I, you know, got, got asked the question, of course, you know, register. Welcome aboard, yeah, by right? the way. Yeah. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Thank we you. welcome you. I appreciate you. it. Yeah. Excited, excited for uh, what's to be. come. Yeah. yeah. Um, so also with the uh, 16 to 17 year olds, I, I want to ask about how important you think it is for maybe even just that this pre-registering can happen in high school, which also on top of that can lead to more conversation about voting. Yeah. Bingo. I think having pre-registration is about more than just the act itself. I hope it sparks a conversation, um, not just among those who will be 18 by the next election, but maybe those who won't be 18 by the next election, but they're juniors or seniors typically, and maybe some sophomores who turn 16 their sophomore year. And this, we hope, and I hope, will spark a conversation. You know, when people start thinking about themselves as voters before they actually are voters or eligible to be voters, that's a good thing because it makes it much more likely that that person will vote the first time that they're eligible at 18, 19, 20, et cetera. And if they do that, we know, and there are studies that show this, if someone votes that first time that they're eligible, they are far more likely to make it a lifelong habit. And that's great, no matter where you sit or stand politically. It doesn't matter whether that person votes for a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or something else. We want people to be engaged. We want people to take charge. We want people to use their power. You know, I, I often say, when you turn 18 in this country, you get a lot of things, hopefully. A slice of birthday cake, a pat on the back, a one or more birthday gifts. But you know what else you get, whether you ask for it or not? You get formal political power formal political power. You've always had political power, even before you were 18. Just look at some of the, um, you know, the, the student-led movements around the country on a variety of issues. But now it's formal. Now you get formal political party. You get the United States of America saying you now have a vote. And my message to young people in particular, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, etc., is, look, that political power is worth something. Don't give it up. Don't surrender it. Don't leave it on the table. Uh, because when you don't vote, you're really doubling the vote of someone else. And that someone else may not share your views and values. So go do it. Don't give it up. Don't surrender it. Use it. Step up, stand up, and be a voter. And I feel like the same sort of emphasis can be said with prisoners coming out, um, that they can at least know that they might have a chance to be able to vote once they're out as right. well. No, I think that's right. And to the extent that that instills some hope, 
and some sense of uh, belonging or ownership, that's good. You know, there are also studies, multiple studies that show that the idea of giving the right to vote back to people who have left prison behind isn't just some good deed to do for them. It's in our interest, the rest of our interest, your interest, your audience's interest. Why? Because the studies show that this kind of pro-social behavior, as they call it, voting and the like, that it makes it less likely that someone's going to end up back in prison, less likely for that person to reoffend and commit a crime because they have a sense of belonging, a sense of ownership, a sense of uh, a stake in certain outcomes. And so if we can encourage that, that's good for all of us. Uh, that's good for all of us who live in Minnesota and all of us who live in this country. So that's one of the reasons, I suspect, why this is catching on nationally, why states of varying political complexions, you know, stereotypically blue states, stereotypically red states, are moving in this direction of restoring the right to vote. If you're in prison, no. But once you leave, once someone else who's an expert on the particular case, not me or you, once they have made a determination that, yeah, you're good enough to, to go to work, you're good enough to be riding the bus, or you're good enough to be in the grocery store with everyone else, then it stands to reason that they are also good enough to have a sense of ownership. And then, by the way, it's in all of our interests that that person not reoffend, that they not get back in trouble and get back to where they once were. So, Obviously, over the past few years, misinformation, disinformation has been at the forefront, especially in terms of elections, your, you know, right. your area of expertise. Even the last election, um, the person, your, your opposition sort of ran on misinformation, disinformation, and that, you know, voting needed to be strengthened in terms of limiting that, or, or maybe not in that sense, but you guys were both kind of debating against um, how voting was being done. So this spread of misinformation, disinformation, there's no real way to stop it. Uh, oh, is I wouldn't there? say that. Like, what, what do you, no, how, how do you think you can stop it fully, 100%? Is well, there a way? I, you know, look, thank goodness we have a First Amendment in this country. It's a cornerstone of what it is to be an American. People have the right to free speech. People have the right to be wrong in America. Absolutely. We have people in America who think that Elvis is still alive. We have people who think the moon landings were fake. And you know what? All of us would say, 100% of, of, of your listeners and viewers would say, yeah, I mean, okay, they have a right to that. They have a right to yell it from the street corner. Um, but the problem is that sometimes certain kinds of disinformation can, at their very worst and at their most extreme, inspire violence. And I think January 6, 2021 was an example of that. Things that were false about the election system and about the particular 2020 election that inspired people to violence. So it's not that people don't have a right to say or believe anything they want. Um, but we also, have a, who, who know what the truth is, have a responsibility to lead with the truth and to counteract things that are false, whether it's Elvis being alive or anything else. In my case, I don't have any problem with someone saying Elvis is alive. That's fine. But in my lane, in my job, it is my responsibility to lead with the truth to push back against disinformation, particularly where it appears to be intentional, uh, that it is um, spread and peddled for political purposes, sometimes economic purposes, sometimes both. So sure, people can say things, but I too can and should say things to counteract that. And I really make a distinction here. I make a distinction, I think it's an important one, between people who intentionally peddle disinformation, national political figures and others, and everyday folks who have been taken in by some of this, most of this, all of this in extreme cases, 
But look, the way I look at it is this. What distills it in my, my mind is this. A little over a year ago, there was some national polling done that was really instructive for me and I think people who are also in the democracy business. And so it's a little over a year old. It's a little stale, but I can't imagine it's changed radically since then. And it basically showed a quarter of people in this country are absolutely and firmly convinced, as I am, that our elections are fundamentally fair, accurate, honest, and secure. They certainly are in Minnesota. Uh, about a quarter think the exact opposite, that uh, the elections are uh, either sometimes or more than sometimes rigged, fixed, and stolen. But 38%, according to this polling, 38%, by far the plurality, are in the gettable middle. It, it's not a binary thing. Maybe they believe some of what's been said that's not true. Maybe they believe a little bit more than some, but, but they're totally persuadable. They don't know what to believe. And so my job is to speak to them and explain why the system is, in my judgment, fair, accurate, honest, and secure, to explain the many systems we have in place, speaking only for Minnesota for a second, the many systems and guarantees of trustworthiness that we have in place before, during, and after the election. And I think, uh, based on my own experience, and I think the polling bears this out, when people come to understand or discover those things, they are far less likely to buy into certainly the most extreme um, variants of disinformation. And, you know, I don't want to get too technical here, but, you know, yeah, for people who think that elections equipment is changing votes from candidate A to candidate B, I'll speak for Minnesota for a minute. We have a rigorous pre-election testing process for all elections equipment in Minnesota. Keep in mind, our office, we don't count votes at the Office of Secretary of State. We never lay a finger on a ballot. That all happens with local governments, cities and towns and counties. And these are very often people that folks know their friends, their neighbors, et cetera. And there are always people watching that work, checking that work, um, in advance of that work, making sure systems are ready. So in the example, just give this narrow example of elections equipment, one of the conspiracy theories flying around was, oh, by the millions, elections equipment was changing votes from candidate A to candidate B. That is not true. I just want to say that is utterly false. And in Minnesota, I can tell you, we have steps in advance. We have accuracy tests that are mandatory for all jurisdictions that uh, own elections equipment. They are open to the public. Anyone can come and watch these local elections administrators put these machines through their paces. And then after the election, we check the work. Not only do all the counties in Minnesota, mandatory, they must check the work, but then we check the work as well in the Office of Secretary of State. So um, the point isn't to get into this uh, sort of a tutorial on the elections process as much as it is to say one way to counter disinformation is just to get the word out about the, the many um, uh, levels of oversight and accountability in our system. And that person will be less likely, I wouldn't say entirely unlikely, but less likely to buy into the grander, more extreme conspiracy theories. So it is a, a, a fight that can be won. But look, in a country as ours, like ours, which is as free as ours, people should have the right to say whatever they want to say. Even if it's misguided, they have a right to be wrong. But I also have the obligation to push back and to persuade that person and the, pers the people who are listening to that person about what the facts are. Yeah, and it, you also mentioned like there's ways to prove it, to prove right. that this election system is exactly right. double-checked and, and triple-checked and you know, however exactly much. Exactly right, right. Uh, there's 
one quote I always remember growing up as a kid. I, I, uh, I'm a hockey guy. I played this, this video, the NHL video games. So, you know, weird topic for me to, to push on. But in one of the games, the uh, commentator says, you got to be good to be lucky and lucky to be good. Huh. Where do you count yourself lucky to be in this position where you are? Are there any moments where, man, if something else had happened, you wouldn't even be close to where you are, whether it's oh, personal yeah. life or professional? Oh, absolutely. I, I think anyone who's honest will say that. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that any person is truly self-made. I don't. You talk about self-made millionaires and billionaires. I think that's a bunch of bull. Uh, not that people in those positions don't deserve a ton of credit for their own initiative and their own, um, you, you know, their own drive and work ethic. That's not what I'm saying. But to pretend that anyone who has achieved anything is entirely self-made, that they didn't have help along the way, whether that's encouragement, whether that's, uh, you know, moral support, whether that's, you know, financial backing, whether that's whatever it is, I mean, um, it takes a lot. So in my own case, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been incredibly fortunate in life, um, you know, starting from my own roots and, and, and my family, who was always encouraging to me, and being lucky enough to be just through the accident of birth, born in a great place in the state of Minnesota, in the United States of America, in the late 20th century. I mean, that, that, that I had no hand in that, right? So even those kind of accidents of birth, I and others owe a lot to that. And so I'm no different from anyone else in that respect. I, I don't believe anyone is self-made. I believe uh, uh, people deserve a lot of credit for their own achievements, of course, as I said, of course. But, but no one is 100% self-made, self and I am certainly not. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the final question I'll ask, the question I ask everyone. Yeah. What is your favorite movie? Ooh, brutal. It's I am such one. a cinephile. I am such really? a movie buff. So you've asked me, my head's going to explode. Okay. Uh, I would have That's to break exciting. it down by category. Uh -huh. I mean, one standard one, maybe a cliche. It, it may be my number one movie just because it's, it's, you could talk about it for hours is the original Godfather. And yes, mm -hmm. in the longstanding fight over which is better Godfather one or Godfather two, I say Godfather one, it's close. Godfather two <laughs> is a masterpiece too, but Godfather one did so much for like, movie making. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliantly told story. It's brilliantly written. It's brilliantly acted. It has inspired so much and so many. So that might be my all-time favorite, but I reserve the right at some other day to substitute that. So but, but that's one of the absolute greats in yeah. the history of cinema. But there are various categories, like what movie made me laugh the most, or what movie... Um, you know, uh, do I resonate the most with, or not necessarily the Enjoy best. with your kids. Yeah, yeah. enjoy with my kids, yeah. right. But if you're asking me just straight up, and I've already talked too long on this, right, uh, <laughs> what is my favorite movie? I mean, that is one of the ones that absolutely comes to mind yeah. because it's just an absolute classic and masterpiece and I think always will be. Well, there's a reason. It's considered the best movie of all time by so many, right? <laughs> Well, thank you, Secretary Simon. I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure, always. It's been and, awesome. And welcome to Minnesota. Thank you, I appreciate it. We love it. having you. We love that we've snagged you from North Carolina. <laughs> yep. All right, official Minnesotan. And now we're all set. Thank you, Secretary Simon. Thank you. Appreciate it.